Amen. Thank you, Joe. Good morning again. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue to work through the Hall of Faith here and we arrive at part three of Abraham's story. Abraham, there's so much to our father Abraham's story and of course this today, uh, in my opinion, is one of the most shocking stories in all the Bible, especially if you're not a Christian, <laughs> This is a really shocking story. Those of us who have grown up in church, we've heard it, and we've heard it, but it shouldn't fail to shock us. And so this morning we'll be looking at verses 17 to 22, uh, kind of finishing up his mini-biography here and uh, how that applies to our lives in terms of faith. So let's stand in honor of reading God's Word. I'm going to read verse 1. To give us the sort of near context and then verses 17 to 22. So let us hear now the word of God as inspired by his Holy Spirit. Now faith, and you should have this memorized by the time we're done with this, right? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or as I've been arguing here, the evidence of things not seen. Now I'm down to verse 17. By faith, and of course all these have been set off for by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. May He bind it to our hearts. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, this morning we don't need to hear from merely a preacher. We don't need to hear from a philosopher, certainly not a comedian or anything else. What we need this morning is to hear from the one, the true, the living God and His Word so, Father, I pray now that I would not hinder, I would not stand in the way of the faithful and true and clear proclamation of your inspired and inerrant word for your glory. I pray that you would warm our hearts, you would raise our affections, that you would, Lord, cause us to delight not only in knowing your word, Lord, but most of all in doing your word, that we would be diligent doers of your word, not merely hearers only, God that you would bind your word to our hearts, that you would water the seed of your word by your Holy Spirit, that you would make the soil of our hearts good. And Lord, you'd make us holy, even as you are holy. For as we're going to learn here in a few weeks, what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, without holiness no one shall see the Lord. And how sobering it is, God. So remake us, refashion us in your image. And God, if there be those here today who do not know you, and no doubt there is, I pray today would be the day you begin to work in their hearts, that today would be the day of salvation. They would delay no longer. You would draw them out of sin's dark night into the light of your gospel. And they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, they would live life anew. They'd be transformed from one level of glory to another. 
But this is your business, God. Do it in us and through us. And do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you a few questions here. You know, I often love to start with questions. I love what's called the Socratic method. That means asking questions, answering them. All right, it's very simple. So here's my first question. What is in your life that you absolutely cannot live without? Think about it. If you know me, you'd probably say, well, you probably couldn't live without baseball. And I tried last summer, and it was hard, but I did by God's grace. And I'm still standing here, even though we had no baseball for a while, right? Or maybe Georgia football, something crass like that. That might be what you think of. You might think, you know, enough money in the bank, enough money to pay my bills, or, you know, a job that pays six figures or whatever, or a certain relationship. I couldn't live without my husband or my wife or my children. I couldn't live without my best friend. Couldn't live without social media. And if you think that, come see me after we're done here and we'll do our best to disabuse you of that, of that notion. What is your priority? Is it obedience to God? Let me ask it this way What is your idol? John Calvin, the great reformer, well said that the human heart is an idol factory. And I think if we're, if we're self-assessing, just even on a superficial level, we know it's true, don't we? That the human heart, or heart day and night, fashions idols, usually idols made in our own image. We love things. We love to be loved. We love people. We love good things God has given us, Right? But the question I think before us this morning is, do we love the God who gives these things or do we love these things more? Which is it? We're going to get a really stark reminder this morning of what it means to love God more than we love the gifts, I think, today. What is it in your life that you are willing to say with Job, though he slay me, Still, I will trust him. Are you at that place you can say that? No matter what God does in life, no matter what he takes away, no matter what success I have in life or don't have in life, or relationships I have or don't have, I will still trust and obey him. So we come to the story, part three of Abraham's, what I'm calling these mini biographies, these heroes of the faith. And it helps us, doesn't it, so much to see these lives lived out and know, and know that their lives in some places were a train wreck and they were sinners, saved by grace, driven by grace, motivated by grace. It always helps us. The story of Abraham, found in Genesis 22, 1-14. We're going to read that in, a couple of, uh, in just a couple of readings here in a few minutes. But let's set the immediate context for the text. We know Abraham, we know from our studies in past weeks, and hopefully you've read the book of Genesis, you know that he's God's chosen father of the faith. He's the, the first Israelite, really the original man of faith. He's the, the prototype of faith. In fact, when I look out here on Sunday morning, I see the sons and daughters of Abraham. And you say, well, we're not Jewish. Well, no, that's not the point. The point is, it's the people of faith. I mean, Paul deals with this in Romans 4. He's not talking about Jews or Greeks. I mean, Jewishness has been, according to Romans 2, redefined in the New Testament. So the, the people who are circumcised in their hearts, those are the true Jews, and that is you, right, if you're in Christ. So he's the original man of faith, the original Christian, if you will. 
And in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham, promises to make his people as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore and the stars in, in all the galaxies. But there's a problem. And you always, in every text, want to look for the problem. What is the problem here? What is the, R.C. Sproul puts it, what's the drama here? We're going, to, we're going to get into some drama here in a minute. <laughs> but here's the drama with Abraham. Abraham is 100 years old. How many, how many times do you go to the nursing home to visit a newborn baby? The old sister Sarah over there, she had a baby. She's 90. <laughs> you know, they don't have a bulletin board, do they, at the nursing home? It says, right, here's all the births here this month. <laughs> I've never seen that. You haven't seen that. It doesn't exist, right? Abraham's 100. His wife Sarah is 90. Her womb is barren. And yet God's going to make them a people as numerous as the grains of sand on the beach and the stars in the sky. Right. Right on, brother. Not very likely. But that's how God works, isn't it? He works in ways that are unlikely that totally confound human intuition and human wisdom. 100 years old, 90 years old, and yet God's going to make him a great people. And God does give life to Sarah's dead woman. She bears a son, Isaac. Imagine being 90 years old and having a son finally. Named him Isaac, her only son, the son of promise, the one through whom God will ultimately bring about redemption. As Pastor Doug said last week, God, uh, Abraham tried to give God some help and had, a, had some other children, by, had another son by, by her maid and thought, well, God's surely not going to, he can't do this through an empty womb, so he's going to do it this way. And of course, that was, <laughs> uh, you know, that was just plain stupid. Uh, and, and we know that. He sinned in that, right? But he gives him Isaac as a son of promise. And here in Genesis 22, he puts Abraham to the test by saying, You see this son, your only son? Isn't he beautiful? Now take him and kill him. Kill him. Let's try to put this in some kind of context. What if, what if God told you, I want you to take your dog. I have a dog. and I mean, I love my dog. I can tell you. I love that dog a lot. But someone said, take your dog. Don's shaking his head back there. So I don't love your dog. <laughs> I think my dog, he has a bad history with my dog apparently. But what if God said, take your dog and kill him? Wow. And it's just a dog, right? Not being the image of God. But still, I mean, my dog, man, he's really cute. He's really, you know, he's most of the time sweet. <laughs> if he knows you, he's sweet. Right? We can't imagine that. And that's just our dog, right? And now think about take your son, your only son, and kill him. Sacrifice him to me. Make him a pleasing aroma to me. This is not a fairy tale. This is like Job. I have to remind us that this is a Grimm's fairy tale. And by the way, Abraham did not have the book of Genesis or Hebrews or James, right? He didn't know that it's going to turn out right. Good, I read to the end, and man, he's going to, he's going to take care of it. God's going to do this, right? Job didn't either. I'm being tested. I'll pass the test. It's fine. No, 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 no. We have it, but they didn't have it. He's being put to the test very similar to the way Job was put to the test. And the story of Abraham, this part of the story makes the questions I ask you so pertinent. For in all these things, Abraham struggled over and over again with the question, am I willing to? to believe in God's ability to do what He promised without my help. 
Maybe you're in a seemingly impossible situation in your life, and you're going to try to help God. He surely wants me to help him. I'm, I'm smart. I have degrees. I have this. I've got a big job. You know, no, no, no. Are you willing to trust God as Abraham did, or was he willing to trust God to do what he promised, raise up a son, and then have many offspring through him? He made a covenant that he would do it, a promise. Is he going to do it without my help? Abraham's tried to help him already, keep in mind, and that didn't go so well, right? How's he going to do this? How's he going to do this? Well, it's just seen most clearly in the text before us. We see the test. Turn back to Genesis 22. All the way back to your left. First book of the Bible, Genesis 22. Let's read verses 1 to 8. You might want to put a finger there or put a finger back in Hebrews and stay there. Which says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. This is not his dog. This is his son whom he loves, right? Take him whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Can you imagine? He's drawing closer to the place. Closer and closer. It's like a drumbeat. It's doomp, doomp. Here it comes. It's coming closer, the mountain. And here's what we're going to have to do when we get to the mountain. Just put yourself in his shoes, just for, if we can, just for a moment. Then Abraham said to his young son, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now he says, I'm not going to take him over there and kill him. We're going to go worship. Because this is a matter of worship, right? He's being asked to offer God as a sacrifice, not just a murder, but a sacrifice. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, here I am, my son. And I don't think they said it in that steady of a voice, or Abraham. Isaac doesn't know what's going on, right? Abraham knows what's about to happen. Behold, the fire and the wood. And here's a great question, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. This is the ultimate test, isn't it? I mean, would you want this put to you? I wouldn't. If God said, choose one of your four and you're going to sacrifice them here and it's going to be great. I, I, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure I know how I'd feel about that. I'm pretty sure I know how you would feel about that. Or what if you're a, maybe you don't have children, maybe you're a son, maybe you're an only son. <laughs> Matthew? And what if they're, they're going to take him and they're going to, there's a lot of, see, there are two key players here, the parents and the son. What a test this was. But everything in Abraham's life up to now had been preparation for this moment. Because remember, God had called Abraham, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, to leave his closest relatives and go in faith to a, a, a land that God would show him. He didn't know where he was going. But this time, the expected outcome of Abraham's obedience was not a blessing, but killing the one through whom the blessing was to come. We would never want this kind of a challenge put before us, would we? I mean, we, in our culture today, boy, this seems like a, just sheer barbarism, doesn't it? 
Because this was a test that touched his closest loved one. It's agonizing. I mean, it's one thing to make a choice to believe God when you know that you're the only one at risk. You said, go and kill yourself. Well, you know, that's bad, but that's not nearly as bad. Right? You've heard the country song, don't take the girl, right? Take me. No, we pray that way, don't we? When we know somebody's dying, we love. Try to bargain with God. It's better for us. But he's saying, no, take the one whom you love. I mean, imagine this. I mean, most difficult for all for Abraham, and potentially the most confusing detail is the fact this was the son of the promise. He was going to fulfill the covenant God had just made with him. God works in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform, doesn't he? Now, this is one of those Bible stories that makes liberal scholars say the Bible could never be true. I would never, and I've had someone tell me this in, a, in the past in, in ministry, said I would never worship a God. They said they believe parts of the Bible were inspired, not this part though, because I'd never believe in a God who would ask someone to do that, to murder. And this is a place they say, well, you know, this just proves that it's just a bloodthirsty Old Testament God, not the same God in the New Testament. They're practical Marcionites. Marcion is an early church heretic who believe the Old Testament was a bloodthirsty God in the New Testament. That's the God of love and peace and all that stuff, and understanding it, you know, all the things that even today we say we love. No. But they, they, they stumble at this. They say, God would never do this. I would never worship a God who would do this. And for totally, if we think about this, and we're Christians and we love the Bible, still, even to us, it makes us a little squeamish, doesn't it? I mean, if you're just totally honest. Again, we have the Bible, so it's kind of a, not a fair fight here. Not a fair test, is it, for us? Because we know the outcome. You know, it's like bad at gambling on sports. I mean, I, 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 you know, I might be tempted to do that if I knew who was going to win because, you know, it's, it's, I'm not going to be throwing my money away. You know, any fool would do that, right? But this, the fix is not on here. And yet... We see Abraham's faith, don't we? This must not make us stumble at the Bible, but show that God's ways are in our ways. That In fact, this is one of those paradoxes in the Bible that through death comes life. I mean, think about the cross. Through his death comes our lives, right? Through his resurrection comes our resurrection. And it's only through death, through shedding of blood, that life to us comes. I mean, there's paradoxes all through the Bible, and this is one of them. Because this is how God works, and there's not anything wrong with the Bible. There's something wrong with us. The problem with our misunderstanding the Bible, rejecting Scripture, is not the Bible, it's us. Because we don't think like God thinks, no matter how sanctified we are. He is God and we are not. That shows the difference between us and God, doesn't it? I mean, it was hard to swallow because I believe part of God's intent seems to be to show Abraham this, that even God's promises, even the good things He gives us, can become idols. You've heard me say many times here before, especially pertinent for seminary students, that theology can become an idol. So, well, theology is a great thing. No, I mean, you reform theology, it can become an idol. But you can love that more than you love Jesus, right? I mean, we've, we've all been tempted to that. Many of us have. Because the minute we say, I must have God plus the good things He has promised His people, then we have become idolaters of the most crass type. God plus. The equation, God plus nothing equals nothing, right? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's it, right? So what will Abraham do? Will he love the, the, the promise? Or will he love the son of the promise or the promise giver? 
This is what makes the prosperity name it, claim it gospel so heretical, isn't it? So problematic. I mean, think, think of Job. We'll go back to him for a moment. You know, and you always go to Job. Job it's, Job's kind of inescapable in the, in the Bible for me. Because I wouldn't want to be Job like I wouldn't want to be Abraham. But Job, I mean, he lost everything. He was a righteous man, loved God with all his heart, but of course that did not impress Satan. And when God asked Satan to consider the righteousness of Job, Satan, Satan replied, of course God, of course Job serves you. You give him everything. You've prospered him. He's one of the wealthiest men of the ancient Near East. He's a millionaire. Right? Money for nothing. <laughs> That's it. He's, <laughs> of course he serves you. But you take it away. You take it away and he'll curse you to your face. And of course that doesn't work. And he says, all right, great. He took away his kids. You took away his wife. She said, curse God and die. You took away his animals, his farm. But you've not touched him. And we are so, Satan knows about self-love because he is the embodiment, the very embodiment of self-love, right? That we're self-loving. We love ourselves more than anything else that we wrestle with. He says, okay, well, if you touch his body, then it'll curse you to face. You've not touched him yet. And you know the story. He goes and he gives Satan permission. He's a, a lion. Satan's a roaring lion, but a lion on a leash. God sets the terms and says, go, and you can strike him down, but you can't kill him. And so he strikes him from head to toe with these sores, these boils, these terrible boils, and still... Job says what? After he loses everything first in chapter 1, he says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? And then he says to his wife, who says, Just curse God and die. He says, Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not? And the word is ra'ach in Hebrew, and that is evil. And it means adversity. Shall we receive good from the hand of God, the wonderful promises we just so love, and not adversity? Because he's sovereign over both, right? He's ordained both for our good and for his glory. And surely Abraham loved Isaac, we loved the boy, but now be obedient to God. Do I love that as much? The human heart is an idol factory, right? I mean, the same case Satan made toward Job, he can make toward Abraham. He says, sure, of course, yeah, right. He loves you for all the wrong reasons. I mean, God had blessed Abraham with riches and prosperity and a great name. He's famous. We still, we're talking about him, you know, 10,000 years, 6,000 years, whatever it is later, we're still talking about Abraham, right? We name our children Abraham. I don't know if I'm anyone named Job. Oh, I do. I know. I have a, I have a friend named, yeah, I know, I know. I have a friend named Job, so, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> So he'd made, he'd made his name great, but what did he really give it up to this point? I mean, friends and family in Ur, in Haran, big deal. I mean, like I said, maybe, maybe he had an ornery and nosy mother-in-law. He was glad to leave her. Man, I'm glad to get off her property, right? Send me away. And some of us wish God would send us away, don't we, somewhere else because of the people we're around. Well, we don't know. Maybe that's the case. So really, that didn't prove a whole lot. He's leaving the people. I mean, I left home. We all leave home, right? That's natural. We leave home. So, okay. Big deal. But did Abraham serve God for God's blessings or for God himself? Was he willing to obey God, even if it seemed that God is not going to honor his promises in this life? And are you willing to obey God, even if he does not honor or seems not to be honoring his promises in this life, as you understand them? I think that's the question here, right? We'll get some other lessons, but that's really it. That's why I started with idolatry. Do we love the gift or do we love the giver? 
was Abraham willing to obey God? I mean, if God took our families from us tomorrow and all of our things, would we still serve him? What if he took it all? What if you woke up tomorrow and your whole family was gone or killed? What if all your money was gone? What if you were standing out here at the bottom of the on-ramp with a cardboard sign? What if that was you? You think you still trust God? No one in here is in danger of that right now, so it's easy. Oh, yeah, we love God. He's been good to us, right? He's the man. He's the man. Yeah, I love that Christianity. Good stuff. But would you trust God if it were all taken away? Would I trust God if it were all taken away? That's what I ask, keep asking myself. What did Abraham do? How did he respond? Well, we get his response, don't we? He, he got up early. Verse 3, it took three days. And you imagine those three days, how excruciating that must have been. I'm an impatient person. I don't like to wait. But three days before we go to sacrifice my son in worship, man, that, I, I wouldn't sleep. Three sleepless nights. No doubt about it. Three days. But he goes, right? Painfully, slowly, they get to the place appointed by God. His instructions in verse 5 in Genesis 22 suggest he may have had faith in the beginning that God would perform a miracle. Of course, Hebrews eleven nineteen 19 tells us that Abraham knew God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, and we'll get to that. And so he assures his son here. Very telling verse, verse 8, Genesis 22. God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. He knows. He trusts God. That's it, right? That's the answer. I bet he's still shaking, though, right? Oh, we're going to trust God. Yeah, we're going to trust God. He's always been real good to us, you know, but he's probably still shaking. And we would be, too. And we'll see a bit later, Abraham understood, even from the distance of thousands of years, something of the gospel. We see it here clearly, don't we? The death and the resurrection of our Lord. Verse 9, Genesis 22. Abraham took the wood, let's get the rest of the story. Took the wood, burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so, so both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? Now verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But, and what a pregnant but, right? But. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, like a man on death row who's been, his sentence has been commuted, right? You are set free. Here I am uh, with trembling knees, no doubt. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything with him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So his redemption is drawn nigh here. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. A ram. And he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. 
There was no turning back once the knife went up, right? And he's getting ready to plunge it down. He believed God. His faith led to action, just like James 2 said. His faith led to action, and he was justified by his faith. We know he believed God. We know he trusted God because he was about to kill him. And no doubt he's about to plunge the knife down when the angel said, Stop! I mean, just don't miss the drama here. Boy, this would make a great movie, wouldn't it? <laughs> Maybe it's been made in the movie. I don't know. Probably some cheesy 80s movie. But anyway digress. Wow. The fire was laid on the altar of the wood, right? It led to action. He'd done, he done everything. He raised the knife. But at the point he was going to plunge the knife into the chest of his son, the Lord provided a lamb trapped there in the thicket. And so it is for us, right? Just when we are about to be condemned and we deserve to be condemned, God steps in. He's done it, hasn't he? We're going to get to that more in a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself. Just get excited about that. Abraham established once and for all that his hope was not in an earthly inheritance, but in a heavenly inheritance. And uh, the, the eternal inheritance laid up for him, guaranteed by the covenant God. He learned yet again that God was able to fulfill his promises without anyone's help. Did Abraham learn anything else that day? Well, much indeed. So six lessons, and there's a lot more here. These are, just, these are the first six, we'll call them. You can, you, you can, we, we, can, we can learn some more, but let's, let's start here. Six lessons about, about genuine faith, because if ever there were genuine faith, and that's what in my sermon series here, we've been talking about the marks of genuine faith, right? Well, here are six more marks of genuine faith, and if ever there were genuine faith, Noah and his 120 years, right, of, of being mocked and scorned and building this big boat in the desert, and now Abraham being willing to slay Isaac, the son of promise. Lesson number one. Genuine faith understands that God's forgiveness cannot be taken for granted. Why do I say that? Well, there are many, like one philosopher said, well, God forgives. Well, that's his job. Of course he does. That's why he's there. And you say, well, I'd never say that. But actually, there's two ways we can say that. One, we can think it really doesn't matter how we live because God is a God of love. He has to forgive everybody. And that's a very popular, that's kind of the Hollywood God, right? Everybody gets in because there are no bad people in God's eyes. We're all, we're all the universal brotherhood of, of, of God, right? Universal uh, sons and daughters of God. And that's not a biblical teaching. Second, we can think that because we have lived good moral lives, we've been members down at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church, we go every Sunday, we don't cuss, not so as you can tell, we don't smoke too much. We paid our taxes, usually you've been good neighbors, even involved in our, this, this church and you know, the PTA and all those things, and God's going to forgive us because nobody's perfect. Yeah, I sin a little bit, you know, but God, nobody's perfect. I've done, my, I've done my bit with God. We can think that way, can't we? And I think that's more of a temptation for us than to think the first one, that you know, we can just, doesn't matter how we live. I think we're in, in this church, I think we're concerned about how we live, but we can say, well, because we live that way, wow, God's got to be proud of us. You know, it's like in the first grade, you clean up your plate, you get a smiley face, we get a little tattooed smiley face, you know, I, was, I, I don't think I ever got that back then, I certainly would now, but that's how we kind of think of God, right, boy, he's proud of me, I did my quiet time today, got up at 5.30 and did that and prayed for like 45 minutes, 
And now I'm telling you about it right on Facebook. I got a picture of my hands and my coffee and the, you know, and the Bible. I have my quiet time today. And what you've uh, highlighted there, you know, the most righteous sounding verses. And of course, you're just trying to encourage people, right? You would never do that, would you? Don't do that. <laughs> we might do that. We're good. We're good people. But Abraham recognized that God's promise was not an automatic certainty. God is not under and is not under any compulsion to save large numbers of people or even any if he so chooses. The fact that God saved you, he saved one, that's more than we ever deserve. Because if we got what we deserve, we love to cry, justice, justice, there's no justice, and there is no justice in the world, and there will be no justice, and we need to work for it, I agree. But we cry, not fair, not fair, not fair. But if we got what was fair, and I know I say this a lot, but I need to remind us and myself, if we got what we deserved, that everyone in this room would be in hell right now with the worst of sinners. I would be there with Nero and Pharaoh and Hitler and all the other people we love to talk about as the embodiment of the, I'd be there if I got what I deserved. God is not under compulsion to save anybody because justice Justice is earned and mercy is not. Right? We can demand justice. We can't demand mercy. Very different. And Abraham understood that. We demand justice? Yeah. Mercy? No. We're not owed mercy, right? And Abraham understood that. Secondly, genuine faith understands the intensity of God's love for his people. Abraham surely understood from this, from his experience here on the mountain. For God did not spare his only son either, but gave him up as a sacrifice for his people. We'll celebrate that here in a few weeks with Easter, won't we? The Good Friday and then Resurrection Sunday. And we celebrate that here at Christ Fellowship every single Lord's Day. That's nothing new to us, is it? It's not like we're doing something else, you know, like seven ways to, you know, use social media or invest your money, and then we're going to finally get down to the cross. No, no, no. We hope it's here. It better be here every single week. And it... We, I hope it is. We believe it is. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You all know that verse probably, of course. God so lived this dirty, rotten, stinking, rebellious, depraved world. It speaks to the quality of His love. It's greater than we think. We think, well, it's the extent of His love. No, the quality of His love, right? He loves us, the likes of us. Third lesson, genuine faith is confident that God is able to raise the dead. It says that here in verse 19, back in, in Hebrews 11. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back because he, he got him off the, the uh, altar, didn't he? He received him back, probably with some weak knees. Got him back. Genuine faith believes that God is able to raise the dead. It's not a spiritual resurrection. There are, there are heretical teachers that say, well, these liberal theologians say, well, you know, as long as you believe in a spiritual resurrection and it means has meaning to you, then that's all you need. To which I would say, baloney. Use a good old Georgia theological term. If there's no resurrection of the dead, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, then we're of all people who to be pitied. We should be at the golf course. Right? Or doing something else that you enjoy instead of this. But we believe in the resurrection of the dead, right? Abraham had faith. And it's we believe in a literal bodily resurrection, both of Christ and ourselves, so that when we come to death, when we 
across the chilly waters of death and we come to the celestial city, that we can look back and say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? We don't need to dread death, do we? Because we're going to be raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. You're raised in Him spiritually now to walk in newness of life, but it foreshadows that you will be raised from the dead, and that is genuine faith. That is our hope. Fourthly, genuine faith puts its hope in Christ's substitutionary atonement. That's just a, just a fancy $5 way of saying that God sent a pinch hitter for you. <laughs> You deserve to go up there and strike out, and God said, nope, I'm going to have him do it for you. He's going to bear my wrath in your place. He's going to bear what you deserve to bear. He's going to bear your shame and your guilt. He who knew no sin became sin. He made him sin on our behalf. So that we I mean, made the righteousness of God in him. He made him, Christ became, as we love to sing here, sin for us. Sin for us. Substitutionary atonement. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. I think that's in part what John meant when John, or Jesus meant in John 8, 56. He said, your father Abraham, speaking to the Pharisees, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it in here. We see it in here, don't we? Fifthly, genuine faith is utterly convinced that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There had to be a substitute. There had to be the shedding of blood. Abraham believed that. Do you believe that? It's not fashionable to believe in a bloody cross now. The blow, that's all gross. All that stuff is, is sick and disgusting. And it's divine child abuse, one theologian says. And yet God says, without the shedding of blood, without bearing the penalty for the sin, there is no forgiveness of sins. The, sin, the sentence hasn't been commuted. It's been, it's been carried out by another. Your death sentence for committing high treason against your sovereign Lord has not been commuted as presidents do when they go out, you know, they commute all these sentences. That's not what's happened here. No, it's been carried out down to the last farthing, Jesus says, in your place by your perfect substitute. So the penalty, both the penalty and the power of sin has been broken in your life. Fifthly, sixthly, sorry. Genuine faith is passed down to future generations. We see in verses 20 to 22 a legacy of faithful endurance. First we see Isaac, the son of promise, the one who was laid on the altar, right? What happens to him? The rest of the story. As Paul Harvey said, now we know the rest of the story. Right? Well, here's the rest of the story. Abraham's grandson, Jacob. I'm sorry. Isaac passed the blessing down to Jacob and Esau. The line of the Messiah would come through Jacob and not Esau because Jacob was the chosen seed. Older serves the younger. He's chosen. Continued in line of faithfulness to the promise uh, for, from his father Abraham. He was the son of promise. And he continued right all the way to the Messiah. So you had Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, his son, Abraham's grandson. Here in verse 21, as he lay dying, foresaw that the descendants of Joseph's younger son Ephraim would surpass those of his oldest son Manasseh. And Jacob, of course, knows a thing or two about this. He was elevated over his older brother Esau by, his, by their father Isaac. In the ancient Near East, it was always supposed to be the oldest son who was the son who inherited all things. And God doesn't do things the way we think he ought to do them, does he? 
God is not in the dock. We don't say, you know, I think on a joystick for us. You know, I think God ought to do this, this, and no, no. God's ways are not our ways, and we have to embrace that. And we don't understand it because we're fallen. And, of course, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. One of my favorite stories in all of the Bibles, Genesis 38 to 50, the story of Joseph. I'll preach on that someday probably. But I love that story. And that is uh, Jacob's next to youngest son of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of the leaders of the, one of the 12 tribes. Joseph's future hope is his confidence that God will redeem his people through the Exodus. He foresaw the Exodus, which is a picture of God's salvation, sort of par excellence in the Old Testament. That God would lead them into the promised land and that he would, he said, take my bones. The last thing he says in Genesis 50 is take my bones out of Egypt and bury them in the promised land. That was how confident he was. He said, I'm going to be with you in a sense. I'm going to be with my people. Of course, it took, what, four years, 40 years, 400 years. <laughs> you want to talk about testing your patience. 400 years of slavery for God's people to be released and Enter the land of promise. See, Abraham, we've been saying this all along. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they expressed faith in things not yet seen. Is that your hope? Are you putting all your stock in, faith, in things not seen? Do you delight in, more than things you can see, do you delight in the realities you can't see? Does it go back to our first question? What is your idol? Is it Christ? Does Christ have your heart and your mind and your affections? Do you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And does that lead you to love your neighbor as yourself? And do you see that? Do you see that lived out in your daily lives? Are you willing to sacrifice everything to trust and obey the Lord? Or have the things of this world captured your fancy? Have they captured your affections? Is it baseball or basketball or football or your work, or the ministry. You know, you can make an idol out of ministry. I've been tempted to do that before. I'm tempted all the time to do that. Love the ministry. I'm doing the work of God. How much more holy could you be? Well, as we learned about when some secrets have been revealed about ministers, not so holy after all, right? We can hide behind this. The when ministry becomes an idol, then we're on our way to a place that isn't good. Because I'm guessing in some places, some of these men who've fallen, these deconversion stories, and also the, the, the posthumous <laughs> humiliation of some, it started with an idolization of self and the ministry. Ministry is a good thing. It's a solemn and sacred calling, but it doesn't make a good God. And neither does anything else. Now, we may be called to give up many things for the sake of Christ, even things that are dear to us, even our own lives. You may lose people who mean more than life to you. You may lose your dreams. You may even be tempted to become bitter because your life isn't as good as the other guys. Or is it what you thought God would have you do? Or maybe you're in ministry and you're not, you don't pastor the big church or you don't have the teaching job, whatever it is, or you've not been asked to write books. I can tell you that's not all that great. <laughs> maybe it's that for you. And you'll be tempted to be bitter. We may be called to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ. But we know, as Father Abraham did, that our God is able to raise the dead and he has done it. That our inheritance is not on earth, but with Christ in heaven, where nothing can touch it. 
what the writer of Hebrews tells us, that it's a greater covenant secured by greater surety, built upon greater promises of the one who is, according to Paul, the true seed of Abraham, the one who laid down his life for us. All this is because he has blazed the trail. Jesus blazed the trail. Think about it. Isaac bore the wood for his own sacrifice. Jesus carried the wooden cross up the steep path that led to Golgotha's hill. Beloved, this is not an accident, by the way. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing when he wrote the Bible. All these echoes. Isaac allowed himself to be put on the altar without a word. Jesus was silent as a sheep is silent before his shears, right? The same way. He looked up to the heavens and saw the knife in the Father's hand poised over him, knowing that for Jesus there would be no 11th hour reprieve. Unlike Isaac, Christ was the substitute, the Lamb of God. And the, the knife descended on him, and the cup of God's wrath was drained to its very dregs, and the promise of blessings to Abraham for a people and a land became a full and final reality at the last. And that's where we're going. Is that your hope? Our hope is not in the sound system. Just as Abraham's willingness to take obedience to the ragged edge demonstrated his unbounded love for God beyond the shadow of a doubt, so also God's willingness to take his son's obedience all the way to the agonies of Calvary demonstrated the depth of his love for us beyond the shadow of a doubt. Is he your treasure? Is he your portion forever? What will you give up if called on to follow Christ. Because as the hymn writer reminds us, Jesus demands what? My soul, my life, my all. Let's pray that God will rescue us from love of this world, the things of this world, the idolatries that war day and night for the supremacy of our hearts, and that Christ will be king we be willing to lay down absolutely everything to trust and obey him for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus let's pray father what an what an awesome awe-inspiring text this is and I fear that I have not done it justice or we have just scratched the surface and we will never understand fully your redeeming love for us but God give us grace to let go of this world and to cling to Christ. May we say with Luther, let goods and kindreds go this mortal life also. Father, make us willing to go hard after Christ in our daily lives, not just for two hours on Sunday morning, but especially the other six plus days of the week, Lord. Give us grace to be willing to lay down everything to follow Christ. I hate not to, to be willing to lay down our own lives. Because Jesus said, if you hate not your father, mother, brother, sister, wife, and children, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Make that the cry of our hearts this day and in the days to come. May that be reflected in our selfless service to others. In Jesus' name, amen.